0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu.
1: Hey, hey, I'm Brittany Luce, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, a show where we talk about what's going on in our culture and why it doesn't happen by accident. And a warning to listeners, this episode includes mentions of racialized violence and murder. Today, we're talking about Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon, and why some American audiences are leaving the Oscar contender deeply disappointed and even hurt. I had a one word, which was just disaster.
2: I
3: think it worked as a piece of filmmaking, yes, but I think, There's a lot that's
1: missing.
4: It's an intriguing film. It had some serious issues with storytelling and what gets left out of the story.
1: For those of you who may be unfamiliar, Killers of the Flower Moon is the most recent entry into Scorsese's catalog of aggrieved white male characters. It stars two of Marty's favorites, Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, as well as the dazzling Lily Gladstone, in an American epic about greed, thievery, and unspeakable betrayal set on the Osage land of Oklahoma about a century ago. It's also three and a half hours long.
4: I'm here to speak with Molly Burkhardt, whose sisters and mother is dead. She's my wife.
1: Now, I'm a longtime Scorsese fan, so the running time didn't bother me so much. I found Killers of the Flower Moon to be an impressive feat, beautifully directed and superbly acted. It felt like after years of showing white men as the hero, Scorsese subverted expectations to paint them as villains. But still, like so many viewers, I was haunted by the story of Killers for days after I saw it. Based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning book of the same name, the film tells the story of the reign of terror in the plains of Oklahoma. From 1918 to 1931, over 60 members of the Osage Nation were murdered for their land and their oil wealth by white settlers. Robert De Niro plays William Hale, one of the masterminds behind the murders, and Leonardo DiCaprio plays his nephew, Ernest Burkhart, who becomes a part of the plot to marry into, poison, and steal Osage wealth.
4: I don't know what she said, but it must have
1: been Indian for handsome devil. Lily Gladstone plays Molly Kyle, a wealthy Osage woman who marries Ernest Burkhart. And as she buries her mother, her sisters, and becomes very sick herself, she finds her husband is not the man she thought he was. Killers of the Flower Moon has received many a rave review, and it's primed to become an Oscar favorite, but critiques of the film have also run deep, raising hugely important questions about our movies and their inability to grapple with the American destruction of indigenous communities, even when the very best filmmakers try their very best. That's the view I'm unpacking today with three incredible guests. Liza Black, a history professor at Indiana University Bloomington and Cherokee Nation citizen. Nancy Marie Miflow, a gender studies professor at UCLA and Fort Sill Chiricahua Warm Springs Apache citizen. And Robert Warrior, who teaches literature at the University of Kansas and is an Osage Nation citizen. Welcome to It's Been a Minute, Nancy Marie Miflow. Good morning. And Robert Warrior, welcome. Good morning. And Liza Black, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Wonderful. Okay, so I would like to hear more from each of you about how you think the film works as a piece of storytelling about Native Americans and the Osage people. Unfortunately, in the U.S., these stories are woefully undertaught to non-Native people. And so when a movie gets made, it can become... The de facto shorthand understanding of that history or of those people. Robert, you wrote a piece about how the film missed a huge opportunity to talk about the government's actual role in in setting all of this horror up.
4: There are so many different ways to tell a No Sage story. I think that this one has been told before. One of the reasons why the federal government didn't show up in the first place is because the federal government is what initiated what was going on Hmm. through policies. And I think one of the traps has been to presume that by talking about these murders, that somehow solves the problem. That the murders were solved, and then the reign of terror was over. Nothing could be further from the truth. I think that that was a way to avert attention away from the underlying issues in federal policy and in the history, particularly the Osages, but also within the larger history of Native American dispossession. That led to this.
1: Looking at how much focus the film puts on the whole plot for Ernest to marry Molly and then kill her for her inheritance and head rights, which is horrific in and of itself, it does set us up to miss the forest for the trees and not see the depth of the government's implication, which is an interesting choice because, of course, you know, the last third of the film and also the point of view of the book Killers of the Flower Moon was really driven by this Texas Ranger U.S. Marshal who's been sent from Washington to actually fix things without really making clear just how much the government is implicated in also being the quote-unquote bad guy of this story.
4: We see the people who show up to take advantage of the situation, Mm -hmm. but we don't really see the actual bureaucrats who are there to make all of this work. And without the context of the presence of federal policy of the specific history, I think it limits the choices you can make about the story of their marriage. I mean, I think that their marriage is wrapped up in all of this.
2: I mean, I'm just thinking aloud with you guys, but... I think the marriage indicates choice, right? Mm-hmm. To a movie-going yes. audience, that they both had free will, okay? And they were both somehow equal. Like, you we're imagining that the Osage people and Burkhard, you know, have somehow just accidentally, magically fallen in love. And that distorts the narrative. I think that's what you were referring to, Robert, because, you know, there there is no free choice for the Osage people at this point. It Mm. is a reign of terror at this point.
1: And so the marriage trope, it it doesn't look anything like a love story to me. Oh my gosh, Nancy, Robert, I am so glad y'all have brought that up because my understanding was that the love part, it was just something that like Ernest told himself, like as a self delusion to continue doing whatever evil he was doing. But as I've seen more and more criticism of the film, the love story part continues to show up as something people are centering in the story.
2: It's an accessory. It's an accessory to another hero's journey into the wilderness. It's basically a Western. I mean, give us a break. (laughs) And if you're a hero, you got to find, you know, a love interest while you're out there in the wilderness, having your journey with the exotic others, you know. So it's all part of that larger narrative.
1: (sighs) Hmm. Eliza, I want to hear from you on this. How do you think that this film works as, you know, a a piece of storytelling about the Osage people and Native Americans.
3: I think it did a terrible job, really, of of telling the story in spite of the tremendous effort that went into this film and the tremendous consultation with Osages that went into this film. Let me say that the Osages in this movie kicked ass. I mean, that scene where all the Osage men are just riffing, like, that's an incredible scene. So let's not forget that those folks did a great job in the movie. But I was really shocked by what I saw as a lack of storytelling, actually. I was very surprised there wasn't a narrator to help hmm. viewers manage all of these details. And, and I really want people to understand what Robert's saying is there's there's a lack of history in this film. And there's also a rejection of connecting this story to the present. Hmm. hmm. These aren't policies that are of the past. These are policies impacting Osage people now. There's many other churches, trusts, individuals who are currently occupying head rights. So I would just beseech your goodwilled listeners to engage with us.
1: Hmm. Hmm. You know, the Western, as you all have mentioned, is one of Hollywood's iconic genres, foundational genres, really. But it it hasn't necessarily centered Native American stories or told them with a lot of depth or accuracy. How have you seen the representation of Native American people change over the decades in American cinema? You all have touched on some of the headlining tropes already, but I'd like to hear from you maybe more in depth. What are some of the tropes that emerge also when you think about that representation over the past 100 years. Nancy?
2: I just want to get this out here really plain and clear. More images does not equate into more equity, right? Mm. And having a heightened emotion, which violence will prompt, does not equate into empathy. So we're working with a a lot of, I I think, really Mm. base understandings that are incorrect, We think that if we can see someone suffering, we'll immediately have empathy and that emotion will somehow translate into social policy. And for Native Americans, it's specific and it's unique from other marginalized communities because when you prompt for empathy, Basically, what gets triggered is this objectification, because Native people are objects, just like mascots, just like our artifacts, just like our bones, you know, just like the resources, our land and our, 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 our water and our minerals, right? They're, they're mm-hmm. there for extraction and exploitation and, and commodification. So Native people and, and the research that I've been pursuing with a, a social scientist, Sasha Sherman basically can't be put in that same research category as any minoritized population in the United hmm. States because people trigger differently with Native people. They objectify them more readily and it has everything to do with the cowboys and Indians trope. And this hmm. film just extends that trope further.
1: You've blown my mind telling me that mainstream audiences respond differently to Native Americans than they do any other like minoritized group in the United States. As a Black person, that is mind-blowing to me. One of the things I kept turning over in my head was about the choice to like, center Ernest Burkhart, to center someone like Leonardo DiCaprio and to have his uncle played by Robert De Niro, who's kind of masterminding a lot of these marriage plots. I kept thinking, well, it makes sense that Martin Scorsese would choose to cast those actors and have those characters be... The center of the story in some way, because my assumption was if the story centered on, on the Native American characters, that the mainstream white film-going audience would over-identify with the Native American characters and see themselves as them without seeing themselves as party to the violence that was enacted upon them. And it's very interesting that you bring that up as something that you've seen in your work, like that that can be a thing that happens.
2: If you're interested in social change, you have to have both the perpetrator and the victim in the same scene with equal agency. If you don't have that, then you're not going to be able to move to a space of equity or empathy.
0: Mm. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu.
1: Mm-mm-mm-mm. You know, I, I want to hear from you, Liza, about placing this film in the context of Hollywood cinema. How you see the sort of longer history of Native American representation in American cinema, and what tropes jump out for you within that history as well? My question
3: would be how has the representation of white characters changed? over the history of cinema, because we've laid out a lot of problems with the movie. But I think another central problem to add to that list is the problem of white characters. I think that the movie refuses, really, to Mm -hmm. turn Ernest into a villain. I think it even refuses to turn William into a villain. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just really want to make it clear, I feel that the problem in the history of cinema is Hollywood's refusal to portray white characters as the premeditated murderers and dispossessors of Native people. This is what Hollywood is really afraid to do.
1: That is such an interesting point. We think a lot about American cinema as a form of self-mythologizing when it comes to quote-unquote American values or certainly American history. But there's almost like a self-infantilizing that you're getting at Their agency to carry out these genocidal crimes is not being shown in a full-throated way. Is that what you're saying, Liza?
3: Yes, and I'm I'm dying to know Robert's thoughts too.
1: Yes.
4: (laughs) He's
3: nodding a lot um, and probably has a lot to say.
4: The part of the agency too here that is really particularly disturbing was the idea that I think the film portrays that the Osages didn't know what was going on. They didn't know. They knew people were being killed. Right. And that somehow, you know, the one scene where they say, you know, we would have gone out and killed these people, you know, if we could, if we just knew who they were. Right. Right. You know, but, but I think that they did have an awareness of what was going on. It wasn't that they needed to somehow figure out who are these individuals who are killing us. It's look at the system that's in place. And that somehow William Hale is, enlisting all of the white people from the Osage Reservation at the time, all of them seem to be in the know that all of this is going on and the Osages don't know. Listen, I can, any reservation community I've ever been in, it's not as though that the white people in, the, in that community are more clued in to what's happening in it than the Native mm-hmm. people. I mean, that mm-hmm. goes back to a sort of Du Boisian double consciousness, right? You say like, Native people living in those environments, they have to have a double, triple, quadruple consciousness yes, of the world around yes, them, right? Yes. So I think that people had a really strong awareness. But you see this embrace in the film of William Hale and never sort of somebody rolling their eyes and going, oh, God, this guy again.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Right? And and why not that?
1: Yeah, that was something that felt missing for me with the film. I think it also indicates a gap. In perspective, but also in lived experience. Like, if you've never really had to back channel in that kind of way, then why would you put it in your film? Right. Another question for you Many critics and viewers, even those who appreciated the film, still felt like the Native American characters deserved more screen time, especially Ernest's wife, Molly, played by Lily Gladstone. Critics have also noted that in their depictions, the Osage characters still felt like They fell into the same stereotypical pitfalls for Native American women. Their victims were love objects. And this is a characterization that's not new and unfortunately not uncommon in American cinema. How can we sort of break out of that kind of characterization? Narratively, what would you like to see done differently to break out of that while still telling a true story?
3: Great question. I think this is not the movie to show that Native women are powerful, right? And I don't know how you could take that story and sort of say, all Native women are, you know, leaders, I don't know that this would be the right movie, or the right story to tell to show that Native women are strong and powerful leaders who are articulate and bold, (laughs) which which Native women are. Hmm. But if he had found other ways to connect it to the present and sort of shown Osage women who are leaders who are articulate, and on the front lines of fighting for their nation, you could do it this way. But I think we have such a long way to go with representations of Native women, but I do Mm. think it's bound to Hollywood's refusal to let go of the white hero trope.
1: Hmm, hmm, hmm. A lot of times people think that the way to combat a film that they don't like is to make a better film, and that can sometimes be helpful. But even thinking about film itself as a medium and what it's built on and what the industry around it is built on, it's kind of antithetical to telling the kind of story that it seems like, that I know I want to see right. um, and that it sounds like you all want to see as well.
2: Yeah. This conversation reminds me of when people talk about museums and how to decolonize them, you know, there's never a thought for, well, are museums inherently a colonial institution and are they like redeemable? You know, I'd have to ask the same question with film, right? Hmm. You know, you've given film a hundred years to tell the story of cowboys and Indians Is the film industry taking its job as a storyteller really seriously or has it relinquished that role to commerce? Because if entertainment means murdering Native women Mm -hmm. and men on screen and you're going to eat popcorn and laugh and somehow that's what America is ready to pay money for and what the industry Mm -hmm. is ready to invest millions of dollars in, then that to me is a sign of maybe the film industry is irretrievable at this moment. Mm
4: -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do we make the media better for Native people? The one thing I would say to everybody who's listening is, you know, the one thing you can always control is what you're watching. And one thing, sometimes the best thing to do about bad media is to turn it off Hmm. and to turn off the television. You may want it to get better, but you can always turn it off and say, there's got to be something better to do with my time than watching this.
1: Robert, Nancy, Liza, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a dream of a conversation, and I'm really grateful that I got to unpack it with you all. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Brittany.
2: Thank you all so much. Thank you, Brittany. I really appreciated our talk.
1: Thanks again to Robert Warrior, Hall Distinguished Professor of American Literature and Culture at the University of Kansas and Osage Nation Citizen. Dr. Liza Black, Associate Professor, Native American and Indigenous Studies and Cherokee Nation Citizen, and Dr. Nancy Marie Miflow, Gender Studies Professor at UCLA and Fort Sill, Chiricahua, Warm Springs, Apache Citizen. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. This is Christina in D.C. I'm a producer for Code Switch here at NPR, and I've been following the story about Congress censuring Representative Rashida Tlaib over her comments on Israel and Hamas, and I'm wondering what your reaction was to that. It was a really big deal in Washington. Thanks. Oh, my gosh. This is the first time I have gotten uh, a Hey, Brittany from a fellow colleague. Hello, Christina. Thank you so much for calling in with this question, because it has been on my mind. I mean, normally when you guys call me up, I got the answers. (laughs) But today, I honestly just have more questions. So for those of you who don't know, censuring is, according to the U.S. Congress website, um, a formal statement of disapproval in the form of a resolution that is adopted by majority vote, which is what we saw happen with Representative Talib, The question I keep asking myself though is like, what does it mean that the only Palestinian American in Congress right now has been censured? Representative Talib has been calling for a ceasefire and a big issue for Talib's opponents is her use of the phrase, from the river to the sea, which is a reference to the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, where Israelis and Palestinians live. The phrase, has been a rallying cry for Palestinian self-determination we've heard at protests around the world. Many historians and scholars have pointed out that the phrase's history dates back to the 1960s and is based in Palestinian liberation from the government rule of Israel, but also Jordan and Egypt, and it doesn't necessarily call for violence. But recently the phrase has come under fire, with some Jewish and pro-Israel communities interpreting it as a genocidal chant. A few weeks ago, the phrase was labeled as anti-Semitic on the Anti-Defamation League's website. Talib says she uses it in the spirit of peace and coexistence and has repeatedly condemned Hamas and the October 7th attacks. And even taking all that into account, though, Talib is not the first or the only congressperson to ever use language or take a stance that their colleagues disagree with. That kind of comes with the job. It makes me think of something that I heard from Representative Ken Buck. Um, a Republican from Colorado who opposed the censure proposal against Representative Tlaib. He said, it's not our job to censure someone because we don't agree with them. But even if we take a look outside Congress, right, in the past few weeks, people all over the world have been calling for a ceasefire. Hundreds of thousands of people around the world who have been protesting in the streets. But the thing is, is that a lot of times when people think of protesting and taking to the streets, They think of a radical position, something unpopular. But at this point, a ceasefire isn't even a radical position among American voters. Polling has shown that the majority of American voters across party lines, not just Democrats, support a ceasefire. I can't help but think of this popular saying in the disability community, nothing about us without us. It means that no policy should be decided without the participation of those directly affected by that policy and I think that when America is at its very best, we see that at work. Christina, thank you so much for asking such a thoughtful and important question this week. It's something that's been on my mind. And I think it's been on a lot of listeners' minds, too. And yeah, take care of yourself and have a good weekend. If you have a thought or question about culture, send us a voice memo at ibam at npr.org. That's i b a m a-M at NPR.org. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by
0: Corey Antonio Rose. Barton Girdwood. Our
1: editor is
2: Jessica Plachek.
1: Bilal Qureshi. Engineering support came from Patrick Murray. Maggie Luthor. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of Programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of Programming is Anya Grundman. All right. That's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, MassMutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at betterhelp.com NPR to get 10% off your first month. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original
1: documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.